I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And we also have a guest from Schroeder's, Jessica Ground, who is head of global stewardship there. From the US, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, in conversation with the head of Fundera, which is an online small business lending platform. This week, we'll be discussing the culture of banks and what the Banking Futures Project is aiming to achieve. Secondly, we'll be looking at UBS's quarterly results and what they tell us about volatility in the banking system. And finally, a look at that Fundera online lending platform in the US. First, though, Jessica, thanks very much for coming in to talk to us about Banking Futures. You've been involved in this project for some time, and it's all very much a part of trying to reinvent banking, the way that we do banking culturally. Exactly. I think quite rightly, after the banking crisis, we had a lot of conversations about what we don't want from banks. We don't want them to be casinos. We don't want bankers to be overpaid. But we hadn't actually stepped back and thought about what we do want banks to do. How can they serve the economy and serve customers? And this is what this project was aimed at doing. And this week, you had a pretty landmark event, actually, in the City of London, didn't you, to launch this project and your thoughts about what banking and banks should be looking like in the future? What was amazing about the event is that we had representatives from civil society. We had regulators, including Andrew Bailey. We had investors and we had bankers in the room talking about the future. I'm relieved to say there weren't any fistfights and there was actually some quite constructive dialogue about the need to have more conversations like this if we're going to build a system that serves the economy. So if you had to pick one thing that everyone agreed on, what banks should be, as you say, not what they shouldn't be, and how to achieve that, what was the priority recommendation, if you like? I think the most important thing that came out actually is something around culture. But what we've done is we've created a culture of regulation and box ticking. And we haven't actually created a culture in the banks where they think about how they serve their customers and meet their long-term needs, whether they be retail customers or business customers. And in having these feedbacks where we actually had businesses and consumers, banks were able to sort of start bottoming out what those end customers need. And then very importantly as well, banks have been saying to investors such as ourselves, well, this is all very well and good, but you still want quarterly earnings. And actually, we were able to have conversations that said, no, we do want you to be investing in the right kind of technology platforms. We're worried about the threat of online lenders. And we do want you selling products that don't just make short-term profits, but are really in the long-term best interest of the customers. So I think banks felt quite relieved by that. So do we need then to get away from the whole norm of banks, in particular, reporting results every quarter? Well, 
We're certainly very supportive of the moves in the UK that all companies can reduce their quarterly earnings reporting. And indeed, a few months ago, we wrote to all of our UK equity holdings asking them to review. Quarterly earnings can quite often lead to quite a lot of debate around a short-term noise. We're long-term investors and we're much more interested in having deep dives into things that don't really get discussed, how much is being spent on technology, how much is being spent on risk, rather than how is a company just performed in 13 weeks. And how does that proposal in the UK compare with what other investors want? And also, how does it fit into the global landscape where in some big economies, there's an actual legal requirement to report every quarter, isn't there? I definitely don't think of the point where we're going to change the US and the love of quarterly earnings. But I think it's interesting that we've already seen some of the big names in the US market, Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett, sitting down to talk about the corporate governance environment. And indeed, we've seen Larry Fink very publicly throughout last year from BlackRock talking about the balance between dividends and reinvesting in the business. So I think this focus on long-termism, we're starting to see it on both sides of the Atlantic. And I actually think that having fewer quarterly earnings might be tougher for you guys as journalists. And there are definitely some people in the market who like to trade around that type of news. But long-term investors like ourselves, which is a really important stable capital base, remember equity capital is meant to be long-term risk-bearing capital. To me, it seems really appropriate that we focus on the long term. Well, good luck with that. And also with the broader Banking Futures Initiative. Jessica, thank you very much for joining us. Well, that point about long-termism is the perfect segue into our second item for today, the quarterly results from UBS. Laura, I think I'm right in saying the shares are off about 8% this morning following UBS numbers, which disappointed the market. They did. I mean, UBS was a very interesting set of results because they had a very good year. If you look at their annual net earnings, they were up almost 80%. So they had a very good year. They had a very bad fourth quarter and people really are reacting to the fourth quarter. In terms of what happened in the fourth quarter, we saw in the wealth management business, which is kind of the mainstay of UBS now, they had net new money outflows of 3.4 billion francs, which is the opposite of what you want to see in a wealth management business. The investment bank also didn't do too well. So now we're seeing shares fall. The bank is saying that they could have taken in more net new money had they been willing to sacrifice the longer term profitability for the short term top line growth. But they made the decision to not actually do that. In the investment bank, they're saying that part of the reason they saw the fall in earnings was because they decided, given what was happening in the market in the fourth quarter, they didn't want to risk too much capital. So we saw their risk weighted assets in the investment bank fell by about 5 billion Swiss francs to around 63 billion because they wanted to take off risk. The consequence of that was lower earnings. And the consequence of that is that shares are off now by about 8%. It's a pretty dramatic turnaround, really, from the sentiment around UBS for much of last year, where they were being applauded for implementing the new model, the kind of capital light investment bank model of focus on wealth management, and their shares boomed as a result of it. It shows markets can be really very fickle. I mean, because earlier on in the year and earlier on toward the end of last year, everybody was all seeing the phrases of wealth management. All the other European investment banks, Deutsche, Credit Suisse, were asking why they didn't go down the UBS route of making wealth management the mainstay. 
what they're finding now is interest rates haven't really moved in line with expectations. People expected the Fed to be more aggressive in raising interest rates. That would have helped the wealth management business. The Fed is now seen as being fairly slow to raise rates. The BOJ, Bank of Japan, is obviously cutting rates. They're now in negative territory. UBS has a big Asian exposure. Then you also have the ECB, which we're seeing rate cuts again. So you see the big macro picture is kind of also moving away from the wealth management place. So I think if you talk to investors and analysts, they do still have fairly high hopes for wealth management over the medium term. The thing is, though, people seem to be really reacting to the short term. The only other thing to say coming into this is, as you rightly say, UBS had a very good run in the last year. That did mean that the share was quite highly valued coming into this. So there is an element of it just coming off from quite a high valuation on the way into these earnings. Well, Jessica's still here with us. I need to bring you in on this whole point about short termism and the kind of long term value of a bank like UBS. Well, I think the, the first point is that Switzerland's actually one of the countries that's reached out to us at the Banking Futures Project about having a similar type of dialogue. So it's not only UK banks that are thinking about this. And indeed, we've had some incoming from the US. When I think having looked at banks myself as an investor for a very long time, that that strategy about building the long term relationships, especially in wealth management, is so important. Once you have those assets on your book, if you put them on at the wrong margin, that can impact your business for an incredibly long time. So I think the management is right to be thinking about that to not just chasing volume over value. And again, that is the right long term approach. Similarly, controlling the risk-weighting assets in what have been incredibly volatile markets. You know, investment banks are perhaps famous for getting bloody noses at times like this. And I think even in the run-up to the crisis, they didn't really understand all of the risks that they were necessarily piling on as a whole investment banks. So at least now they're in a position to decide how much risk to take, how much balance sheet, and to stop having some of the upsets. So actually, I think the moves that UBS are making are very sensible. You always have a question about uh, short-term valuation and what you pay for that. But I do think that especially their wealth management franchise will remain the envy of a lot of other people who don't have those types of long-term relationships. Okay, thank you for that. Let's go to the US now, where Ben has been talking to the head of Fundera. Today, I'm joined by Jared Hecht, co-founder and chief executive officer of Fundera. That's an online marketplace that matches small business owners to the best possible lender. As we know, online lenders have grown very rapidly in the US in recent years. They're all trying to simultaneously offer cheaper loans to borrowers and higher returns for investors by connecting them directly through online platforms. And now they're all starting to ramp up spending on advertising. This weekend at the Super Bowl, we're going to see an ad from SoFi, that's the San Francisco-based student lender, rubbing shoulders with the likes of Budweiser and Doritos. So, Jared, uh, what does this mean, the fact we've got the likes of SoFi, which most of our listeners won't have heard of, advertising at the Super Bowl? Well, first off, thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it. The Super Bowl advertising is interesting. This is one of, if not the first times outside of the IPOs of Lending Club and OnDeck in the U.S., where we've seen an online lender, a non-bank lender, actually make a countrywide move to develop brand awareness. And we know these things are generally expensive endeavors to pursue. But I think what it really signals is a lender coming of age and trying to put a stamp on a very particular type of asset class in a search to actually build their brand across the entire population. And so far, as I understand it, is seeking to diversify into all kinds of different products. It started with supplying um, refinance student loans to some very, um, what they call them Henry's, high earning, not rich yet right. customers. But um, is that source of funding or demand potentially beginning to dry up? Is, is this why they're looking to develop new sources? I think that this is a move to defend and build the brand. And I think, you know, to your point, 
about them beginning to offer new products. I think the way they generally view the world, and I think this is consistent with a lot of what they've spoken about before publicly, is that they have a customer base that they believe is highly affluent and will grow with them over time. And if they can develop more products to service them on an ongoing basis, their business should become increasingly profitable as well on a cohort basis, and their customers will be retained and happier as well. So this is really step one in a long-term relationship that they plan to engage with with many customers. And can we talk about the industry in general, which uh, if you talk to some of the mainstream banks, they say that the whole existence of online lenders is a bit of a perversion, the result of ultra-loose monetary policy, which is forcing investors into risky uh, investments just to drive up their income. Are we beginning to see signs of strain in, in some of these portfolios? I think it's slightly too early to tell. I think there's been a lot of sentiment that 2016 and 2017 will be somewhat of a year of reckoning. There are a lot of things happening at a global level that are creating a lot of hesitation and probably a little bit of fear in terms of how markets are performing. We're already beginning to see the markets in general underperform or tank to some extent. And you know, with the recent rise with the Fed, with the Fed hike in interest rates, it's unclear how lenders will kind of weather any impending storm. I think one thing that is true is that we've had very few lenders weather the last downturn. A lot of these companies are relatively new. And their portfolios have grown tremendously over the course of the past five, seven years. Mm -hmm. And to see how those perform holistically, if there is a downturn, is something that hasn't happened before. So I think there's a little bit of waiting. I think you have access at Fundera to some pretty good data, right, on how these loans are performing. Are there any um, themes emerging? I don't think there are any themes emerging yet. I mean, generally what you see is that riskier customers will have a higher proclivity to default in the grand scheme of things. But we've seen that consistent across all asset classes. Right? We saw that in the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, we've seen that in the U.S. We've seen that abroad. So I think that's more common sense than any overwhelming theme. I think the themes are kind of waiting to be developed and I do think that there will be more insight as this year progresses and early 2017 comes as well. And how much longer can the marketplace lenders' regulatory advantage last? Again, whenever I talk to banks, they say that these guys are very lightly regulated compared to the extreme levels of regulation they're subjected to. Sure, but they're subjected to it for a reason. They're managing the money of retail investors. My grandmother's money is going to be kept at a bank mm -hmm. and the government doesn't want them lending that money out unscrupulously. So when we look at who the investors are behind any of these major online lenders, these are presumably sophisticated institutional investors and accredited investors alike. A majority of the capital being lent is coming from these capital providers. So they are more educated investors in the grand scheme of things. And many of them will even provide their own complementary underwriting alongside the underwriting of some of the major institutions, whether that's the lending club or on deck. Mm -hmm. You've also been involved in the development of a Bill of Rights for small business borrowers. Can you explain what that's all about? Yeah, so the Bill of Rights was, was started by an industry-wide coalition of small business lenders, Fundera, and some small business nonprofits as well. Some participants included Fundera, Lending Club, Funding Circle, Oxion, Small Business Majority. And really what it was about was laying a groundwork, a set of guiding principles that would encourage lenders, brokers alike, to always act in the best interests of small business owners mm -hmm. with the idea that if there ever were regulation, this was a self-start, an opportunity for regulators to see what several different players in the industry think are best practices when it comes to the lender side of the business and when it comes to the broker side of the business. And uh, I imagine lots of the guys that supply lots of um, funds to your platform, they are 
adhering to the code, are they? But what about the brokers, which are, I think is, a, is perhaps an American phenomenon, which we're not so experienced at? Sure. And when we look at the marketplace holistically for small business, we think that the most egregious infractions are really initiated by loan brokers. And I can provide you just a brief example. Yeah. Loan brokers operate relatively similar to the way that travel agents used to operate before the days of Expedia came along where their incentives are to put a business owner into a product where they will make the most amount of money, not a product that's best for the business owners. And ironically, almost all of online small business lending has grown off the backs of these loan brokers who are perversely incented and really don't have the best interests of the small business owner in mind. So at Fundera, we built software and code best practices into that software so that a small business owner ultimately has buying power. And in regards to the Small Business Borrower's Bill of Rights, we really took an opportunity to craft the broker section such that we were making sure that the business owner was always protected, had buying power, and would come out on top as opposed to constantly being sold to and taken advantage of. And just to come full circle back to SoFi, which is very aggressive in portraying itself as a sort of anti-bank, representing everything that the banks don't or perhaps that they should. To what extent um, will the marketplace lenders that um, currently use your platform, are, are they going to replace the banks in the US? So I think what we're seeing, particularly in small business, and even consumer now, is an appetite to partner with banks, to partner with banks for capital, to partner with banks for new customers, to partner with banks for new economic opportunities, to actually license their software, whether it's on the underwriting or servicing components. A lot of the story early on when it came to peer-to-peer lending or marketplace lending or online lending was, this is the substitute for banks. And that narrative has changed quite drastically over the course of the past, probably 12 to 18 months. So we're seeing an overwhelming appetite on behalf of banks and both lenders to figure out how they can best navigate this space from a partnership perspective. Do you think the partnership between JP Morgan and OnDeck, I think it was signed about a month ago, a little over that, is a sign of things to come? Yes, I do. You know, we, we have one of the big four banks in the U.S. saying we are going to partner with OnDeck, which is now a publicly traded company and relative to the rest of the companies in the space. It, that is a big deal because a, a large hesitation from a lot of the banks is really oriented around what is the reputational risk mm-hmm. of partnering with any given funding provider. And when a company is traded on the public markets, I think it really does help to mitigate any reputational risk in that regard. You know, it's a regulated company. It's financial or public. It's subject to greater scrutiny than any private company out there. But when you see a big four bank partner with an online lender, it obviously creates a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of conversation across the broader market. Mm -hmm. So now you see a lot of banks looking to understand what's going on in that partnership, potentially replicate it, or come up with their own version of it. So the banks are no longer the enemy, they're they're the frenemy? I think it depends who you ask, but that seems to be the way that the narrative is emerging. Thank you very much, Jared. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura here in the studio and also our guest Jessica Grant from Schroders. Also thanks to Ben and his guest in the US. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.